Welcome back to another curbside consult from NEJM Resident 360. I'm Mike Mee, an editorial fellow at the New England Journal of Medicine. In this episode, we're bringing you part two of a two-part series on GI bleeding with Dr. Naveen Kumar, who is an attending at the Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston, and Belen Simon, a fourth-year medical student at the University of Massachusetts Medical School. I encourage you to go back and listen to part one on non-variceal upper GI bleeding if you haven't had a chance to listen. This episode will cover variceal bleeding, which has its own unique set of management considerations that's different from those caused by ulcers, and lower GI bleeding, which has always been confusing to me due to the relative lack of evidence in its management. So let's get started. Welcome back, Naveen and Balim. There's so much to love and discuss about gastrointestinal hemorrhages that we had to do a part two. In part one, we covered the differential diagnosis and initial approach to suspected upper GI bleeds, the evidence behind risk stratification scores, transfusion thresholds, IV PPI, endoscopy timing, and what to do about antithrombotic agents. So, Balim, we cured our first patient and stabilized his bleeding. Shortly thereafter, you get a page about another patient. So this time, we have a 48-year-old gentleman with a history of alcohol abuse and hepatitis C who presents with hematemesis. So you look through his medical records, you find that he suffers from depression, he's homeless, and infrequently sees doctors for care. Initial vitals in the ED are blood pressure 90 over 65, heart rate 100, respiratory rate 20, and an oxygen saturation of 98%. On exam, he's slightly confused, he's oriented, but slow to answer questions. He appears jaundiced. You make out engorged superficial veins on the abdomen, which has moderate amount of ascites, and it's difficult to assess whether he has hepatomegaly or splenomegaly with the ascites. He has muscle wasting in his extremities. When you ask him about medications, he's not sure if he's taking any, and looking through his labs, you see that notably his sodium is 130, his BUN is 30, creatinine is 0.8, hemoglobin of 7.3, platelet count of 54, his INR is 2.6, ALT and AST are 68 and 56. The total bilirubin is 4.9, and his albumin is 2.9. So, Belem, what's going through your mind right now? How are you approaching this patient who's coming in with hematemesis? Okay, so given the patient's presentation, there are a number of things that make me worried about kind of a cirrhosis, portal hypertension picture in him. So his history of alcohol abuse and hep C in his presentation, the fact that he came in jaundiced, there's this description of what seems like caput medusa. He has muscle wasting. He has elevated AST, ALT. He has elevated INR, and he has low albumin. So all of these make me worried about hepatic failure in him. And with this in the setting of hematemesis, I'm worried about variceal bleeds for him. So as we discuss in terms of first looking at him, Assessing his hemodynamic stability is very important. He's already presenting with soft blood pressures of 90 over 65. He's tachycardic to 100. And I don't know his baseline, but it seems like he's a little confused. So this is a patient where I'm worried about worsening of his hemodynamic stability and also inability to protect airway. So for a lot of reasons, this is a patient that I really want to keep an eye on and start working on him very quickly. That sounds like a great first stab at it. And Naveen, anything you'd like to add about a patient like this coming in? It seems pretty obvious that it's probably a variceal bleed, but anything about the differential that you'd like to comment on? I think Balim did an excellent job going through this patient, the risk factors for 
him having chronic liver disease and this being a portal hypertensive bleed, which we'll get into in a little bit why we manage these bleeds different than the non-variceal upper GI bleeds that we talked about in part one. One interesting thing, though, is if we do go back to what we learned in part one, we talked about the AIM-65 score and as being a nice prognostic indicator for patients presenting with GI bleeds, upper GI bleeds, and that includes variceal GI bleeds. In the original study, they did look both at non-variceal and variceal. They ended up only publishing on the non-variceal GI bleed patients, but I know this also worked for the variceal GI bleeds. Oh, that's really interesting. So if we look at this, right, so what the albumin criteria is less than 3. We meet that with an albumin of 2.9. Impaired mental status is the M, so he has that. INR above 1.5 has that point as well. And then systolic blood pressure less than or equal to 90. That was also present here. So the only criteria that this patient doesn't meet is the age. So this is four out of five AIM-65 points. That's a very high risk for mortality. And so when I'm looking through this data, not only am I thinking, yes, he has a lot of things going for a portal hypertensive bleed, but not only that, this could be a severe bleed in, in a patient who has a high risk of mortality. So I'm definitely, just like Belim said, I'm worried about this patient. Looking through exactly how Belim went from top to bottom, the vital signs, the exam is very helpful because you are seeing signs and stigmata of chronic liver disease in terms of the jaundice, then gorge superficial veins looking like cap and medusa, the ascites, and then on laboratory evaluation, you're seeing evidence of synthetic dysfunction. Either of you ever used the APRI score before? No. So it's the no. AST. It's the AST to platelet ratio index. It's an old score, and it's not that sensitive or specific. It's kind of in the 70 percentile for both. But it's an easy way to look at laboratories and get a sense of whether or not the patient has underlying cirrhosis. So if you take the AST to platelet ratio, and if that is above 1.0, that's strongly suggestive of the patient having cirrhosis. So that's a nice, easy score that you can do. You can plug into a calculator. You do have to correct for the upper limit of normal of the AST value, but something easy to do if you don't have any knowledge of someone having had a previous liver biopsy to get a sense of could this be portal hypertension. And then lastly, going back again to part one, we talked about the BUN to creatinine ratio being above 30 to 1 as an indication of upper GI bleed, and we have that here with a BUN of 30 and a creatinine of 0.8. So I'm thinking upper GI bleed, most likely variceal, and most and a severe upper GI bleed based on the patient profile that you presented. Great. And last time you mentioned that for patients with variceal bleeds, you tend to get to endoscopy a lot faster. I presume that's probably because these patients can really decompensate from a variceal bleed. Could you maybe just remind us a little bit what's the pathophysiology here and what can happen in these types of bleeding that makes it so scary? Absolutely. So the issue here is that with portal hypertensive bleeds, you're dealing with higher pressure bleeding that can be quite severe once that bleeding opens up. So the reason why you have portal hypertensive bleeds is that the the systemic circulation is trying to find ways around the liver where there's a high level of resistance to return that blood back to the systemic circulation. And in the setting of this, you can get these offshoots of varices developing And the issue with where the varices develop is how much of a protective layer is between the varix and the lumen. So, for example, in the esophagus, if you look at varices that develop in the middle of the esophagus, there's typically a fair amount of tissue between the varix and the lumen because those varices are developing the submucosa. But if you go more distally in the esophagus, that lining gets thinner and thinner to the point that in the distal esophagus, there's the thinnest amount of superficial tissue between the varix and the lumen. That's why there's such a high risk of esophageal varices, particularly distal esophageal varices bleeding. 
why is it so scary? So it's the mortality rate. So Bolin, what would you say that if you were to guess, what's the mortality rate of a patient coming in with a variceal bleed? What percentage would you guess? I would assume it depends on how severe they present. How about all, all comers? Probably about 40%, maybe. So that's very high. It's actually 10 to 15%. Oh. But that is an incredibly high level if you compare it to non-variceal upper GI bleeding. Do you have any sense of what the mortality rate is with non-variceal upper GI bleeding? I'm going to go with 2 to 3%. Perfect. So it's 2%. So it's a huge difference, 2% versus 10 to 15%. It's almost you're looking at 6 to 7-fold the mortality rate every time a patient comes in with a variceal bleed. That's why it's so scary, and that's why we act sooner. That's why guidelines say that we should do an endoscopy within 12 hours, whereas with a non-variceal upper GI bleeding we talked about last time, it's 24 hours um, guidelines to do the endoscopy. Last thing I want to mention is that, and this goes along with the why the variceal bleeds are so scary, so 90% of the time non-variceal upper GI bleeds stop spontaneously before we even do our endoscopy with the medical therapy we provide. Variceal bleeding is only 50%, so there's a much higher rate of these bleeds persisting and recurring than with non-variceal bleeding. So for all those reasons, that's why we get quite nervous about variceal bleeding. Interesting. Going back to that point about the mucosal protection from the lumen, is that why we don't often see patients come in with bad rectal variceal bleeding? I assume people are developing varices other, elsewhere in the body, but it's always the esophagus that people are worried about. Excellent point. I often notice that on CT imaging, the radiologist may comment that, that you see varices in several different locations of the body, but you, I think you're exactly right. I think that is the issue. It's amount of how much supporting tissue is present between the varix and the lumen, and it's just that it's the thinnest in the distal esophagus. That's why we see this esophageal, variceal bleeding quite frequently. All right. So, Bulem, very appropriately, you saw this patient, heard about his story, and felt that this is somebody we got to be very careful with and monitor very closely. So, what are some of the next steps in terms of treatment? How do you want to start off? Okay. Given the patients coming in with kind of this untreated cirrhosis, there would be a lot that goes into his management, such as lactulose, et cetera. But I won't go into that. I'll just focus on what we would do for his GI bleed. So I'll start with what I would think to do in terms of managing him in terms of blood products. So as we spoke about the Villanueva study last time, this is a patient presenting with an upper GI bleed, and they tend to do better from a mortality standpoint with a restrictive criteria of transfusion, which says that we shouldn't transfuse the patient until the hemoglobin is 7 or below. So he's, again, right at the cusp of that. He's at 7.3. So this is a patient that I would lean towards transfusion at this point. The other thing that's striking to me for him is that his INR is very elevated, likely due to his underlying hepatic failure. So this is also a patient that probably would warrant FFP to correct his INR. And his platelets also seem to meet criteria for transfusion, which tends to be probably around 50, and he's at 53. So those are the three things that I would start with in terms of blood products for him. Great. And let me just pause you right there and see if Naveen has any comments about that resuscitation up front with products and crystalloids, et cetera. It's great that we talked about all those three different things we could do. So honestly, with a hemoglobin of 7.3, I would wait and get a follow-up hemoglobin level, which was what was done in the study, that they got a follow-up within six hours, and see where this patient settles out. The issue being that giving more blood, as we talked about before, can actually, like Balim noted, be harmful to the patient. 
And if you go back to that Villanueva study and you look at their subgroup analysis, it was actually the patients with cirrhosis, child's pew group A and B, who derived the most benefit from the restrictive strategy as opposed to looking at all the patients as a whole. So it just underscores the fact that giving transfusions to patients who have portal hypertensive bleeding is particularly dangerous for those patients. So I would be very careful with that. Platelets, excellent question. Typically, for when we think about endoscopic therapy, we want the platelets above 50. So this patient's at a platelet level of 54. I'm okay with that. But I do like this idea of starting to work on the INR. One thing to underscore, though, is that actually you can do endoscopy up to an INR of 2.5. This patient had an INR of 2.6. It would be nice to have the FFP running, but I wouldn't necessarily say that we have to repeat an INR before we bring this patient down for an endoscopy. This has been studied extensively. Actually, going up to an INR of 2.7 in the literature has been safe to perform endoscopy with therapeutic interventions. So it's important to know that, yes, the INR is elevated. Yes, we need to address it, but we don't need to hold off on endoscopy in order to confirm that that INR has come down. Mm -hmm. I think this issue of clotting and bleeding in patients who have cirrhosis is always such a tricky situation. And it was shocking to me when I first had my patient with cirrhosis who need a therapeutic paracentesis then R&R in the high twos, and we just went ahead and did it because there's really no benefit in correcting that very quickly. And oftentimes you're cautioned that an IRR may not be the most accurate indicator of clotting, especially since these patients are not making procoagulants or anticoagulants. Perfect. Exactly. You have to think about how the fact that they're not making protein C, they're not making proton, protein S as well. So just like you said, there's a balance here. It's not just, you can't just look at that INR and say, oh, they are very high risk for bleeding. There's also the whole thing that you said about having the absence of anticoagulants that actually can make them prothrombotic as well. All right. So we made some decisions about the blood products that we want to give and how to optimize them for procedures as well as controlling the bleeding a little bit with these agents such as FFP. Now, anything else, Bulim, that you want to give this patient up front? Sure. So Again, like we spoke about it last time, PPIs are something I would start on this patient for clot stabilization, as well as erythromycin prior to his EGD, which will happen hopefully in the next 12 hours. And then because this is a variceal bleed, or my suspicion is very high that it is, I'd also start this patient on octreotide and ceftriaxone, and then I would call the GI consult. Excellent. All right, let's break those things down a little bit. So you mentioned octreotide. What is the reason that you're giving that? So I know that it, and I used to know the mechanism a lot better closer to step one, but I know that it decreases essentially portal hypertension in these patients, and therefore by decreasing the pressure, it'll also ease the bleeding on the varices. Yeah, I think that's perfect. I think about two factors being present with portal hypertension. There's an issue of flow into the liver, and there's an issue of trying to get the flow out of the liver. So like you said, this doesn't address the fact that there's high resistance within the hepatic sinusoids within the liver. But you can limit the amount of blood that's getting there in the first place, but with the octreotide and vasoactive medication. So that's perfect. Great. And then you mentioned giving an antibiotic to this patient. Mm -hmm. Now, based on all the labs that we have so far, I don't see any clear evidence that he has an infection. How come you're giving him an antibiotic? So I'm not worried of him currently having an infection. But it seems like from a number of different trials, the conclusion is that in patients with cirrhosis who are presenting with variceal bleeds, starting the patients on prophylactic antibiotics seems to reduce their rates of infection but also improve mortality. 
Yeah, it's interesting. This patient isn't manifesting signs or symptoms of infection, but actually one in five patients who presents with cirrhosis and GI bleeding has an infection, and we just haven't seen it yet. And then this goes up to even 50% when they're hospitalized. So very high rates of infection, even occult. And I think this is a key point that I actually didn't know before fellowship, which I should have, but it's not just patients who have ascites, right? This is antibiotic prophylaxis for any infection. Turns out SPP is not the leading cause of infection in these patients. Do you know what mine is? I don't. Yeah, so <laughs> that's, it's actually urinary tract infections oh, is the wow. leading cause, followed by SPP, and then the next two are respiratory infections and primary bacteremia. So really important to note that just because a patient with cirrhosis, if they don't have ascites, that doesn't mean they don't need antibiotic prophylaxis. Anyone with cirrhosis who's coming with a GI bleed should get infectious prophylaxis. And the evidence is actually quite strong for this. There was a large meta-analysis that looked at this, and not only did it decrease the risk of infectious complications, but it actually had a mortality benefit. So very strong reasons to use it. Bolim, in your practice, what kind of antibiotics have you seen? I've usually seen ceftriaxone. Perfect. Yeah, exactly. So usually we start ceftriaxone, one gram, Q24, IV, and then we can transition to ciprofloxacin, 500 milligrams twice a day as a near discharge so that they have a PO regimen that they can finish off seven days of prophylaxis. Mm. And what about the mechanism here that creates this relationship? Uh, I've always wondered, is this like a chicken or the egg problem? Because are people who are coming in with GI bleeds, with cirrhosis, just decompensating, their body is in a weakened state and they're more prone to infection in that setting? Or is it because there's some occult infection going on and that's triggering the propensity to bleed? Yeah, it's a great question. I honestly think both theories could be at play, but I, I favor the former where you say that a GI bleed can decompensate a patient with cirrhosis, making them more susceptible to infection. That's what I think most likely is going on. And so we need to be very careful about these patients, make sure they're on infectious prophylaxis, as well as kind of evaluating them for infection when they present. Yeah. And I think it's important to note here the pecking order of things that are important and to remember for our listeners that giving antibiotic prophylaxis in this setting has a mortality benefit, whereas we talked about last time, giving an IV PPI for upper GI bleed only improves endoscopic appearance and maybe endoscopic parameters. Exactly. And if we go back to the octreotide that we wanted to start, octreotide actually doesn't have mortality benefit as far as we know in terms of the literature. Terlopressin does, but terlopressin is only available outside the U.S. We don't have it here. So when we start our octreotide, 50 microgram IV bolus followed by 50 microgram per hour drip, we're not addressing mortality, but we are reducing the risk of rebleeding, and we are helping with hemostasis. So I, I like that point that with, that with actually antibiotics, we have a mortality benefit there. So very important to not forget. Mm-hmm. So similar to a situation like sepsis where giving antibiotics is very important early on or not to miss it, and then with some of these other interventions where timing does matter, What's the harm of making a false positive diagnosis? In a sense, you know, this patient seems pretty clear that cirrhosis is the etiology of their bleed. And I think most of the time when a patient comes in who has had prior healthcare contact, you can look through their records and verify that they had a history of cirrhosis. But what if you have a patient who's a little more subtle in their presentation, you're not really sure if this is a variceal bleed or just another cause of upper GI bleed? What's the downside to just giving them these therapies early, upfront, try to mitigate the risks? Yeah, it's a great question because one argument could be made that why don't we wait to endoscopy, see what we're dealing with, and then decide, oh, there are varices, they're bleeding, therefore we're going to initiate kind of the variceal bleeding pathway. So it's actually been shown that all these things should be done upfront, not wait until endoscopy. 
So it's very important that if you have any suspicion that this could be a variceal bleed, that you start the infectious prophylaxis, you start the octreotide, you don't wait till endoscopy to confirm those findings. So that's a great point to bring up. All right. So Bulem, we've gotten some of the key medications going. We've resuscitated patients as we need to. Now you mentioned calling your GI consult. So what are some of the things you're going to be telling your consultants and what are some of the things that you're going to be asking them to potentially do for this patient? So I think because the patient's history and presentation was really what alerted me to the fact that this might be a variceal bleed, I will call a GI consult and present to them exactly how this patient presented, the important labs that clued me into that fact that this might be a liver problem that's uh, going on. And also, I would let them know the different measures that we took in order to stabilize this patient and medically manage them. And then I would have essentially two questions for a GI. One of them is that given our high suspicion of variceal bleeding, whether they can take this patient for an EGD for banding, because as we spoke previously, there's a 12-hour window essentially where it's important to have these patients on Awesome. So, Naveen, would you take this patient for a TIPS procedure? So That seems awfully aggressive to me. I agree. So we'll talk about TIPS in a bit, but absolutely we should first look. So we need to confirm this is a variceal bleed, and we need to give the GI doctor an opportunity to try to address the bleeding and achieve hemostasis. So completely agree with you, Balim, that this EGD should be done within 12 hours. That's according to guidelines. And the preferred therapy strategy is banding. As you mentioned, in the past, sclerotherapy was used, but that's been found to have higher complication rates than banding. And both achieve about 90% rates of hemostasis. So that's quite good. And the one thing to note is that we're hoping these are esophageal varices because, as you both know, gastric varices are much more difficult to treat endoscopically. They're not amenable to endoscopic banding. It can be done, but it's not effective. And so those patients either need sclerotherapy or they need the TIPS procedure that we'll talk about in just a bit. So one thing to note about the variceal banding protocol is that once we've banded, we've submitted this patient to require needing serial sessions of endoscopic variceal banding until we've completely eradicated those varices. So that means bringing a patient back every three to four weeks, repeating the endoscopy, assessing if the varices are still present, and if so, banding them. And banding also comes with complications. What happens when that band falls off and the mucosa falls off with it, what's left behind? A hole. Exactly, an ulcer. (laughs) And so those ulcers can bleed. So there are complications with banding as well. But in terms of a patient who had an active variceal bleed, certainly you have to band. And then you submit them to the serial ligations until you've completely eradicated the varices. We'll talk about beta blockade therapy in a bit, but that's an important adjunct that for secondary prophylaxis of variceal bleeding, it's both. You need to band and start a beta blocker. Whereas in primary prophylaxis, you can choose either banding or a beta blocker. So important to note that this patient is going to get banded, and then we're going to continue with endoscopy serially until we've eradicated all the varices, and we're going to start a beta blocker and hope he can tolerate it. So getting back to the TIPS question, so this is good. So usually we do TIPS after two attempts at endoscopic hemostasis, and the patient is still bleeding. So we've tried EGD twice, we've banded they're still bleeding despite that, then we say endoscopy has unfortunately not achieved adequate hemostasis. This patient needs a TIPS procedure. The second indication is if someone presents with a very severe variceal bleed, we either try to do an endoscopy or actually it's so severe that we can't even do an endoscopy, they need to go straight to a TIPS procedure. Those patients, we're not going to talk much about this, but those are the types of patients who usually need to be stabilized by a Minnesota or Blakemore tube en route to interventional radiology. 
But then the question was, are there patients who have more advanced liver disease would actually benefit from an earlier tip? So this was actually a randomized control trial that was published in New England Journal. And it was small, so it was only 63 patients. But key point, all these patients either had child's pew advanced cirrhosis B or C level. Our patient had C, I believe, if we go back and look at his parameters. So these are patients with advanced liver disease. And there were 63, as I mentioned. Everyone got the standard of care with vasoactive therapy and an initial endoscopy with attempts at endoscopic therapy. But then half were randomized to go to TIPS within 72 hours, whereas the other half received standard care. So that means continuing on the vasoactive therapy for three to five days, getting their follow-up EGDs every three to four weeks to eradicate their varices and being started on a long-term beta blocker. And TIPS was only given to them if they really needed a rescue therapy. So it turns out, mortality-wise, 86% of the patients in the early TIPS group survived versus 61% in the standard group at one year. So a significant mortality benefit and other outcomes that were also better for the early TIPS patients, including decreased ICU time, length of stay, and rebleeding. So I'd have to say this, I don't think this has been widely adopted, but it is something to consider. If you have a patient with advanced liver disease, they come with a variceal bleed, you've done your endoscopy, confirmed that they have a variceal bleed, and the GI consultant has attempted to achieve hemostasis, very reasonable to discuss with your GI colleagues whether or not this patient would benefit from an early TIPS procedure. And what about the downsides of doing a TIPS? Yeah, let me, let me toss that back over to Berlin. What's the major complication of TIPS procedures that we commonly worry about from a symptomatic standpoint if we bypass the liver? Hmm. Think about mental status and asterixis. Oh, encephalopathy? Exactly. So we always worry about hepatic encephalopathy, but it's also important to note there's also some absolute contraindications to doing a TIPS procedure. So other reasons why we can't even attempt a TIPS include a patient having severe heart failure, pulmonary hypertension, uncontrolled sepsis, or severe tricuspid regurgitation. So those are four things that actually take tips off the table, but just like, as you mentioned, hepatic encephalopathy is what we worry about. So for this patient who's coming in already looking maybe a little bit encephalopathic, it probably is a bit more of a judgment. Yeah. It's a judgment call there. Absolutely. Yeah. But like you said, we can control hepatic encephalopathy. We have excellent medications. You mentioned lactulose. We can do uh, rifaximin with lactulose as well. But if someone is having a severe variceal bleeding, we talked about the mortality rate. We may lose a patient in that scenario. So it's important to weigh the risk and uh, benefits. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I do think a lot of times where we talk about this encephalopathy versus controlling portal hypertension debate, it's usually a more stable patient and not one that's coming in crashing. Exactly. Exactly. Well, I think oftentimes these decisions with TIPS are obviously going to be made with a GI consultant already involved, so not something that every resident needs to really know the intricacies of, but I think it's important to know that there are therapies beyond just endoscopy and that you can get a patient up to that point where they need the endoscopy. It's also helpful to think about what else is out there and available, and you mentioned that for when the melanoma really hits the fan, you can put in a Blakemore too, so maybe you can just Tell us a little bit about what that is and how it works and does it work? Yeah, no, it's good. So there's a lot of different names because there's some variations. There's a Minnesota tube, a Blakemore tube are the two most common ones. And essentially what you're doing is you're putting in what looks like a nasogastric tube, but you are filling a balloon that exists at the end of that catheter. And you're filling that up with saline. And that's so, such that you essentially are placing a balloon in the patient's stomach. And then you're pulling that catheter out so that you are actually causing tamponade right at the gastroesophageal junction 
increasing the pressure in that area such that you divert the blood from where you believe this patient is bleeding from. The caveat, the nuance with the Minnesota tube is you actually have an esophageal balloon as well that you can inflate that will decrease the pressure from varices in the esophagus. The major issue, though, is that there's a high risk. As you can imagine, you're basically causing this area to get less blood flow. So there's a high risk of ischemia, particularly once you get close to 24 hours. These, these balloons shouldn't be held with that type of pressure and in a patient for more than 24 hours because the risk of a, is causing ischemia to the esophagus, the stomach, are very high. It's a bridge to IR to get a patient definitive therapy with the TIPS. And one other important thing to note for us medicine folks is that this can only be done if a patient's intubated. So this is not something that you do with someone who's conscious and awake. They need to be intubated with their airway protected before you attempt to put down one of these tubes. Mm-hmm. And I think that's uh, also a good point to bring up another question of if a patient is having so much hematemesis that it's probably also a good idea to have them intubated so that you can protect their airway while you're trying to work on controlling the source of the bleed. Perfect. Absolutely. Totally agree. All right. So we talked about medical therapy. We talked about endoscopic interventions. We got the patient into endoscopy suite. He got several bands for two varices. The bleeding seems to be controlled, so we avoided the question of maybe tips, etc. I'm going to ask a bit of a dumb question here. I often get patients when I was a resident back to the floor after they get these endoscopies, and the question always is, how do you feed them afterwards? Is eating going to cause these bands to fall out? We actually get this question all the time as well. I'm a bit conservative on this side. I usually, after banding, will have them just be on a liquid diet for that post-op time, just for that day. But then certainly by the next day, you can start a soft, solid diet and they will do just fine. Actually, I think there's studies looking at nasogastric tube placement after variceal banding, and that's actually been shown, at least in these small studies, that's safe. So that just kind of sets the tone that it is okay to feed these patients afterward. Actually, nutrition is incredibly important in patients with cirrhosis. All right. So, Bilem, we got this patient stabilized for his acute presentation. Anything you want to do for him prior to discharge? So I know that he needs to be, so we'll switch him in terms of his antibiotics to something PO that he can continue outpatient. And then we also need to, as we mentioned, start him on a beta blocker before we discharge him. And it seems like we also need to get him a follow-up appointment, which slightly concerns me given that this gentleman is homeless and seems to have poor access to medical care. But in order to reband him, we also need to have a follow-up appointment for him. Yeah, it's one of the challenges of taking care of patients with these severe end-organ failures, be it heart, lung, liver, kidney. They just need such frequent follow-up, and we'll just have to do the best that we can. Now, in terms of medications, which maybe we can get him on it and taking it for some period of time, what beta blocker would you choose for this gentleman? So the reason I'm choosing this is because I always see this being chosen for these patients, but I'm usually used to seeing nodolol as being the agent of choice as a beta blocker. Excellent. So Naveen, is there anything magical about nadolol or can we just use anything? Why not metoprolol? Yeah, yeah. Okay, so we got to throw it back to some of the pathophysiology days of med school. So with beta activation, you have beta-1 receptors and beta-2 receptors, right? So beta-1 works on where balloon? I'll put you on the spot again. (laughs) It's on the heart, right? So it's cardiac contractility with beta-1, whereas beta-2 activation causes mesenteric arterial dilation. Very good. Yeah, so vasodilation. So the issue is if you use something like metoprolol, which is beta-1 selective, you're just blocking the cardiac contractility, which is fine. That's going to decrease the forward flow. But you still have beta-2 receptors that are open and can be activated, causing mesenteric arterial dilation. 
what you really want to do is you want to decrease the amount of blood even getting to the splanchnic bed, even getting to the liver. And so you want to do that by vasoconstricting the mesenteric arterioles. So what a non-selective beta blocker does, which is blocking both beta 1 and beta 2, you block the cardiac contractility, but you also block the ability of those beta 2 receptors to vasodilate the splanchnic bed. So now you have this quote-unquote unopposed alpha vasoconstriction of the mesenteric bed, and so that allows for decreased blood flow getting to the liver and thereby reducing portal hypertension. So that's why we use natalol, the other commonly used non-selective beta blocker is propranolol. There's also more recent evidence that carvedilol, it can also be helpful in these situations, which is great if you have a patient who also has coexisting heart failure. The carvedilol can kind of address both issues, the liver and the heart. Mm -hmm. Excellent. All right. So just to recap what we've learned so far, Blim, do you want to run us through what we talked about? Sure. So in terms of our patient, we spoke about a um, number of data points in his history, physical exam, and labs that raised our suspicion towards a variceal bleed as he presented with an upper GI bleed as a source. And then once our suspicion was high enough for this, we spoke about a number of different components of his management, which some of them coincide with other upper GI bleeds that we spoke of in our previous session. But parts that are kind of universal to all upper GI bleeds was the transfusion criteria that we used for this patient, as well as for red blood cells and for platelets, as well as the use of PPIs and erythromycin that help us at the time of his EGD. What was unique for him that we spoke about in the setting of a variceal bleed was to start him on a octreotide as well as prophylactic antibiotics to improve, at least for the prophylactic antibiotics, to improve his mortality. And then we also spoke about procedures that he would benefit from, such as variceal ligation and timing of a TIPS procedure for him. All right. Excellent. Anything else we missed, Naveen? Anything else you want to bring to our listeners' attention? Yeah. The only other thing I'd add, I think I forgot to mention this, but so with the non-selective beta blockers, you start them and then what? How do you know if you're getting adequate reduction of the portal pressures? So if you really want to know, you could check a hepatic venous pressure gradient. And if that's, you know, we abbreviate this by saying HVPG, if the HVPG is less than 12, you virtually eliminate the risk of having a variceal bleed. But that's an invasive procedure. That's where you need IR to measure hepatic pressures. So the alternative that we often use is we just look at the heart rate. And as long as their heart rate is between 55 and 60, we feel quite confident that we're getting adequate beta blockade. So it's important to know that once you start something like natalol, you bring the patient back, you check their blood pressure, but you actually really look at their heart rate to make sure you're achieving maximum benefit. And if their heart rate's still up and their blood pressure can tolerate it, then you go up on the natalol. So that's just one more point I wanted to add in terms of how we actually manage these patients on beta blockade. Excellent. And I will say as a aspiring cardiologist, I'm particularly big fan of measuring a transhepatic pressure <laughs> because it's like doing a wedge of the liver. Yes, exactly. <laughs> All right. So, so far in our podcast series on GI bleed, we covered upper GI bleeds, the management around non-variceal, all-comers, and now we delved into some of the details in this specific, very sick population of patients with high mortality, the ones that have cirrhosis, and some of the management around that. One area that we haven't had a chance to cover much is lower GI bleed, which unfortunately is the area where we don't have nearly as much evidence, but is also a very common presentation to the hospital. So, Belim, how do you think about patients who come in with a lower GI bleed? What's an illness script that you think of a presentation for lower GI bleed? So for me, when I think of 
generally lower GI bleeds, I feel that the patients tend to be more hemodynamically stable compared to patients presenting with upper GI bleeds. Some of the things that I think about in terms of trying to differentiate where the source may be coming from was, as we spoke about kind of extensively, is the BUN to creatinine ratio of 30 to 1. This tends to be not elevated on lower GI bleeds. And I may be wrong about this, but my understanding is that if there are clots present in the stool, it's more and more likely that it is a lower GI bleed rather than a upper GI bleed as a source. And those are really the three big things that I think about for a patient if I'm questioning a lower source for his, ble- for his bleed. Mm-hmm. Excellent. Anything you'd like to add, Naveen, about a patient who presents with a lower GI bleed? Anything notable on the history that you will look for? Yes, I agree. I think first and foremost, resuscitation remains key. It's very important with upper GI bleed. It's similarly as important with lower GI bleed. So always remember we're still doing our peripheral bore IV, large bore IVs. We're making sure we achieve volume resuscitation before we start thinking about endoscopic evaluation. Belim noted the BUN is typically normal as long as renal perfusion is preserved in lower GI bleeding. So you can look at that BUN creatinine ratio. That can be helpful. The clots in stool, it has been shown to be much less likely to be an upper GI bleed if those are present. And then I think with, just like we use our history with upper GI bleeding, we should do the same with lower GI bleed. So if a patient's coming in with completely painless hematochesia, that makes you think of diverticular bleeds or AVM bleeds. If they have a change in bowel habits, they're noticing smaller caliber stool, you're certainly now, and they have constitutional symptoms such as weight loss, you're concerned for malignancy. And then if they have abdominal pain, you're thinking about an inflammatory process, um, such as ischemic colitis or inflammatory bowel disease. So I think it's important to use the history to help guide your thoughts in terms of what is exactly going on. And the last thing I'll mention is that although we have this great study from Villanueva published in New England Journal about the specific thresholds for blood transfusion, in upper GI bleeding, we unfortunately just don't have that data for lower GI bleeding. So we can't use evidence-based medicine to guide our transfusion strategies for lower. Mm Mm-hmm. Although it seems in practice a lot of people tend to extrapolate that data, would you say that's fair for these types of patients? Any particular population that you'd be wary of doing that? Yeah, I think it is reasonable to extrapolate from the upper GI bleeding literature. And certainly just as we get nervous about this with upper GI bleeds, I think patients with active coronary cardiac ischemia are certainly patients you want to have a slightly higher threshold. And the last thing I'll say is that, and we'll get into this, but colonoscopy remains the gold standard for the evaluation and therapy of lower GI bleeding. We have all these other modalities that are out there, and we don't really, I think, have a firm grasp on how to use all these different types of imaging studies as well as different therapeutic strategies. But it remains to be, for now, the colonoscopy is the first step in evaluating patients with lower GI bleeding. All right. So you mentioned that there are other modalities. Let's just go through those briefly. So I'm going to throw this one to Belim. Colonoscopy makes sense, but what other tests are out there for diagnosing a lower GI bleed? So there are a couple that we don't necessarily use all that often, but I know do exist. I know that red tagged red blood cells are a method that exists, but it seems that it's not very easy to interpret in terms of locating the source of a bleed, so not very often used. We also do have, essentially for a blind spot in the GI tract, we do have also a capsule study that we can do but also seems like not something that we often do in patient, or at least I haven't seen it done very often. And then I guess also a, a CTA is something that we can also use in these patients, renal function, and if we're unable to get proper results from a colonoscopy. All right. So you mentioned several good studies. Well, 
you mentioned several studies. <laughs> There's the TAGRA cell scan, which is a nuclear study where you, know, you get a tracer tagged red cells, and ideally they would coalesce in an area where there's bleeding. There's CTA, which we're trying to directly visualize extravasation of contrast, which kind of depends on the fact that the patient is still bleeding at the time that you're interpreting the study. And then one thing that you didn't mention, but is really a corollary of the CTA, which is an angiography, more invasive, but one that can be interventional and diagnostic. So there's some nuances as to when these studies would be appropriate. And be curious, um, in your opinion, Naveen, which studies would you reach for when you're on the phone talking to a resident asking you for a consult? And the question is for a colonoscopy, but when would you reply back and say, well, consider these studies in the meanwhile? Yeah, it's an excellent question. I think just like you said, Mike, that you need active bleeding for any of these studies to be helpful. So if someone's presenting and there's no evidence that they're actively bleeding currently, these imaging studies are not going to be helpful. I would still argue, and this is not just because I'm a GI doctor, but I would still argue colonoscopy is the standard of care that we should be providing for patients with lower GI bleeding. Within 24 hours is the time frame that we are looking at to do these studies. But there are instances where I think colonoscopy is not possible, and that's when patients are presenting with severe hemodynamically unstable bleeding and such that they cannot tolerate a bowel preparation, and the risk of bleeding is quite high, and so we cannot wait until we restore their volume status to then do a bowel prep and then do a colonoscopy. So I'd say if patients are coming with severe hematochesia, say we've done our upper endoscopy to exclude an upper GI source because we should do that, if someone has hemodynamically unstable hematochesia, upper source ruled out, and if they're still severely bleeding, that's one instance where I think a localizing study is helpful. And you could also argue that maybe those patients should just go directly to IR and geography because there is this issue that if you send a patient for a localizing scan, like a tagged red blood cell scan or a CT angio, that just delays the time to where they get to a procedure which can actually be therapeutic. So one could argue that if someone's having such severe bleeding, you've ruled an upper GI source, and it's preventing the GI doctors from doing a colonoscopy, maybe they should just go straight to IR angiography, which is both diagnostic and therapeutic. The issue with IR angiography is that it is invasive, and there are complications that can occur, typically ischemic complications with that procedure. So you have to be very selective in terms of the patients that you send to IR angiography. But what's helpful IR angiography is that it can be therapeutic as well. So I'd say, just to summarize, patients who are having severe bleeding that's preventing bowel preparation for a colonoscopy, those patients should be considered for a localizing scan versus going directly to IR angiography. And the other instance where I commonly uh, use the localizing scans is if I've done a good bowel preparation, I've done my colonoscopy, I've seen everything in the colon, I've gone into the terminal ileum to see if there's any blood coming from above, and the terminal ileum is completely clean. And then that patient stabilizes, but then recurrently bleeds for on a recurrent basis during that same hospitalization. That's a patient I might send for a localizing scan, just so I can get a sense of where that bleeding is coming from. And also, oftentimes, managing lower GI bleeds involves interventional radiology as well as surgery. So it's helpful if you're thinking about pursuing any of these other therapeutic strategies that you have a sense of where that bleeding is coming from. That being said, these scans, especially a tagged red blood cell scan, oftentimes cannot localize where the bleeding is coming from because you see this blush of tracer in the right lower quadrant. It doesn't necessarily mean it's coming from the ascending colon or the cecum. 
if you have a sigmoid colon, it's actually redundant and is presenting itself on the right side of the abdomen in addition to the left side, then you may falsely localize the bleed. And actually, this has been looked at. And in one study, 25% of the time, the tagged red blood cell scan was incorrect. It was false. So you can imagine if you're taking a tagged red blood cell scan and then taking someone to surgery, you need to take the reading with a grain of salt. You really want to make sure you know where that bleeding is coming from. That's why the CT angiography is more helpful because you actually have anatomic description of where the bleeding is coming from. But then there's the issue of contrast. And you're giving someone IV contrast who's already bleeding definitely increases the risk of prerenal azotemia. Unfortunate thing is we don't have a great answer for this, and the reason is that we don't have studies in this area. We don't have large randomized controlled trials looking at how do you incorporate these localizing scans to guide management. That's definitely an area that needs to be further explored. That being said, the way I use these tag scans or CT angiography is to help localize in the event that I've already done a good colonoscopy and haven't found the bleeding, or if they're having such severe bleeding, I've talked to the interventional radiologist they want a localizing scan before they attempt IR angiography, then that's the other indication for it. Yeah, that's a great perspective on looking at these studies because I think as a resident, it's always been a little muddy, and I think that's reflective of the state of the research, as you mentioned, that when are all these studies appropriate? And it does seem that in my practice and observation, oftentimes colonoscopy, if patients can tolerate it, is what you reach for first, and these other studies tend to be ancillary for when colonoscopy just doesn't seem to have done the job. And I do want to emphasize something that you mentioned, which is that we didn't mention this for upper GI bleed and in the case of lower GI bleed as well, surgery is one of the therapeutic uh, interventions that's on the table for patients who you just can't seem to control their bleeding or can't get to a source of bleeding with endoscopic interventions. Yeah, exactly. And I think just to add into the fact that the localizing scans aren't always correct, oftentimes what surgeons will do is when they do their operation, they will insert a scope. They'll make an enterotomy, so they'll look inside the colon, then they'll introduce a scope to kind of localize where the bleeding is coming from endoscopically. So not just relying on the imaging data, but they'll confirm with their own endoscopic data to make sure, okay, at least it's coming from the large intestine. It's not coming from the small intestine because the consequences of removing a significant portion of someone's intestine and then finding out that the bleed is coming actually from somewhere else, those are grave consequences that fortunately our surgeons look into. Yeah, that's a really good point. All right, so we talked about the patients who have the severe spectrum of GI bleeding, some of the interventions we can do, such as angiography, if they're really severe, an intermediate step of getting a CTA, if they're bleeding very briskly and you just need to figure out where it's coming from so that maybe it'll facilitate vascular intervention, but otherwise most patients will proceed to a colonoscopy. Now, we have all these really good scores for risk stratifying patients, such as the glasgow Blatchford score or the AIM-65 for upper GI bleeds. Is there anything that you use for a lower GI bleed, or is it just mostly clinical gestalt? Yeah, I mean, just like you said, with upper GI bleeding, we have all these scores, and we've actually had studies looking at using these scores to triage. We talked about last time, if you have a glasgow Blatchford score of zero with a non-variceal upper GI bleed, those patients can safely be discharged and there's been no evidence that they have increased risk of complications or recurrent bleeding necessitating hospitalization. Unfortunately, in lower GI bleeding, we don't have that type of data. So, of course, there are a handful of risk scores that are out there, but if you actually look at these risk scores, their ability to predict poor outcomes is not good, and so they can't be used on a reliable basis. But there are, I think, certain features that I look at when I see a patient who's presenting with a lower GI bleed that makes me concerned that they may have high-risk bleeding, And so those include hemodynamic instability, if they're persistently bleeding even in the hospital 
after being admitted, significant comorbidities, older patients, those with chronic kidney disease or acute on chronic kidney disease, and then especially patients who are hospitalized for other reasons who then develop inpatient lower GI bleeding, those patients are at higher risk. That's also true for upper GI bleeding as well, just an important point to note. So I look at those factors. That's really what I use to prognosticate for these patients. But unfortunately, there's no easy score that I have committed to memory that I can use to prognosticate. All right. So an area ripe for active investigation for any enterprising, aspiring gastroenterologists out there. All right. So let's just do a quick wrap up. Balem, would you like to summarize again some of the key points or any interesting learning points that you took away from today's podcast, and then we'll have Naveen jump in and give us some final thoughts about the important concepts when dealing with variceal bleeds and lower GI bleeds. Sure. So in terms of lower GI bleeds, it seems that because there's a lack of data, we end up extrapolating the upper GI bleed data to lower GI bleed in terms of transfusions and the medical management. We did speak extensively about the different modalities that we have available and when we can use them in order to locate a source of bleeding, but it seems that colonoscopy remains the gold standard for treating lower GI bleeds. And other than that, we take the same steps that we take for an upper GI bleed. Excellent. Anything else to add, Naveen? The only thing I'll add, you know, we mentioned briefly about timing of colonoscopy, that it'd be done within 24 hours. And obviously the next question is, what if we go in sooner? So there have been a couple of randomized control trials, although very small, one in 2005, one in 2010. And both show that if you go in sooner for lower GI bleeding, the first one in 2005 actually found that you did find the bleeding source more often, and therefore you were able to provide therapy more often, but no difference in clinical outcomes, so no mortality benefit, no reduction in need for surgery, actually no difference in length of stay or blood transfusion. And then that was corroborated by the study in 2010, again, showing no difference in clinical outcomes. So that's where the data is that 24 hours has been established as the guideline, but we don't really have good evidence to do it sooner than that. The take home, I would say, we'll start with the lower GI bleeding, is just like you said, Mike, we need more data in this area. I think we need more studies on looking at the timing of colonoscopy again and also looking at how can we use these other imaging modalities to help delineate patients in terms of their management. Does TAG-RBC or CT angio upfront improve outcomes? So, and then if we look back at the variceal bleeding, I think, again, first and foremost, it's really about volume resuscitation and careful blood transfusion. Again, as I mentioned, it's the patients with portal hypertensive bleeds who actually benefited the most from the restrictive transfusion strategy, specifically Child's PU class A and B. So let's be very careful about when we transfuse these patients and let's make sure they get their endoscopy within 12 hours, but let's not wait until endoscopy to start them on the vasoactive medications like octreotide. Those should be started up front. And finally, very impressive data about infectious antibiotic prophylaxis, mortality benefit with that, and is not only for patients with ascites, it's for all patients with cirrhosis because it's not just SPP that these patients develop, it's other bacterial infections that we mentioned before. Mm -hmm. And then one point that I'll just bring up, which Naveen, tell me if I'm wrong, but I've heard that when you're approaching a patient with GI bleed, it's always safer to treat them like they have an upper GI bleed if you're not sure where the source is coming from because those are the more dangerous types of bleeds and those are the ones where the interventions can make a big difference. Is that true? Yeah, I totally agree. If you have any sense that this could be coming from an upper source, treat them as such, and then 
talk to your GI consultant, discuss the different parameters that we've already reviewed, the BUN to cranium ratio, the risk factors for upper GI bleeding. If you're going to start an IV PPI just for the first 24 hours, just in case this is an ulcer bleeding, until they get their endoscopic evaluation, I think that's totally reasonable. Always doing what you can for these patients because you're going to have atypical presentations where you think it's a lower and sure enough it's an upper source and you don't want to be reducing your treatment for those patients because you were putting your nickel down on one localization source when it is actually the other. So I totally agree. All right. So that was a whirlwind recap and also a run-through of the therapies for variceal bleeding. We talked about medical management. We talked about blood product. We talked about interventions. We discussed a little bit about lower GI bleeds and how the landscape of evidence is a little bit muddier there, but there are some core principles that we can stand behind, which is patients assess hemodynamic stability, assess the degree of bleeding, get a colonoscopy if you can within 24 hours, and think about some of these other diagnostic modalities and even think about surgery potentially for patients whom you're particularly concerned about. All right. Thank you so much, Naveen, for coming and joining us. Uh, really appreciated all the insights that you've given us. Thank you for having me. This is a lot of fun. And thank you, Bulim, for joining us and offering your insights as well as this patient case. Thanks, Mike. Thank you for listening to this episode. Please visit our guide on acute gastrointestinal bleeding in the rotation prep section on gastroenterology for more information at resident360.nejm.org. I want to thank our expert today, Dr. Nameen Kumar, and our guest contributor, Bulim Simmon. Our production team here at the NEJM includes Karen Buckley, Kyle Simmons, Mike Tomases, Tim Vining, Kathy Stern, Dr. Karen Sokol Gutierrez, Dr. Lisa Cauley, and our NEJM education editor, Dr. O.P. Hemenvik. Because this is a new series, we want to hear your feedback. So please tell us what you think by emailing us at resident360 at nejm.org or leave us a review in your podcast app. You can also follow us on Twitter, where our handle is at NEJMRes360. Once again, I'm Mike Mee, Editorial Fellow at the New England Journal of Medicine.